Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ at 102.1, your local community radio station. My name is Andy and I'll be with you for the next hour. Coming to you today from Durrambul country in central Queensland, Capricorn Coast area and acknowledging traditional owners everywhere. And on today's show, we are going to be talking about weapons and arms fairs. If you have been tuning into the Paradigm Shift recently, you would have heard a couple of weeks ago a show that we uh, we talked about the upcoming Land Forces Weapons Expo, which is happening at the Brisbane Convention Centre from October 4th to 6th, and Disrupt Land Forces, the gathering of peace activists and people who aren't keen on allowing some of the world's biggest merchants of death to gather together and all uh, talk shop about their products they're selling um, to enable better and more efficient killing of people. Uh, Disrupt Land Forces is the opposite of that. It's people who want to stop it and are getting together. And last year, uh, of course, Land Forces was held in Brisbane for the first time in uh, a decade almost, and there was a massive gathering uh, put together and it did a brilliant job at both bringing attention to what happens there inside the convention center behind all the PR spin to talk about the use of these weapons uh, and also making it quite an unpleasant place to be for those hoping to do business deals there. wasn't enough to stop it happening again, but that doesn't mean we're not going to try again to, uh, to stop it. So if you want to listen to that previous show from two weeks ago actually i i should mention this more often on the four triple z website you can listen to previous shows if you go to the paradigm shift page and then just um swipe across the page or click on the little calendar icon backwards then you will find that show where i interviewed uh margie pastorius from disrupt land forces as well as Michelle Fay talking about the revolving door between weapons corporations, the military, and the government. Um, so have a listen to that. And this morning, actually, some of the crew from Disrupt Land Forces have been out on the road at Ipswich at the facility of Ryan Matar, one of the world's biggest weapons manufacturers, and one that notably sells tanks to and other weapons to the Indonesian military to enforce the uh, occupation of West Papua and the repression of activists all through Indonesia. Um, 
and they've been disrupting Ryan Mattel, just warming up, I think, for Disrupt Land Forces. If you want to see what's going on there, head to the uh, social media of Wage Peace, and you will be able to see that. But stay tuned in for now to the Paradigm Shift, because today's show as well, we're going to be talking about weapons fairs, how to disrupt them, and why. Uh, I recorded a bunch of stuff last year, interviews um, in the lead up to Disrupt Land Forces because I think it's a, a really important thing to do when um, when it's right in the middle of our city and when it's actually potentially quite a winnable campaign to stop this happening. And the reason I think that is because it has been done before. And so we're going to play an interview I recorded last year with Ian McIntyre, one of Australia's great radical historians, about... ADEX 91, um, which he did write a book about. It was a blockade of an arms fair in Canberra, and they managed to successfully stop the ADEX Weapons Expo uh, from happening ever again. And so it's very interesting. It's a great bit of history, but also talking about the tactics and the strategy of it is very useful. And I like to do that on the paradigm shift. We're not just talking about the problems of the world here. We want to talk about how ordinary people like you and me can make a difference uh, to make the world a bit better. So that's to come first up in the show, and then in the second half of the show, I'll talk to Elise West from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War about the work that they have been doing trying to stop uh, weapons manufacturers infiltrating primary and secondary schools in Australia to try to get um, kids excited about uh, you know, making weapons and uh, as well to try to funnel some of the gifted kids into their programs and it's quite an insidious thing that the weapons industry has been doing one of many insidious things that they do and MAPWA there have been shining a lighter and actually having some success as well they've been managing to get some uh, schools and learning institutions to back away from linking up with weapons manufacturers so that's what's coming up stay tuned I'll also have some great anti-war songs for you. And let's start off with learning a bit of history from Ian McIntyre. My name's Ian McIntyre. I was somebody who attended ADEX 91, and I've uh, helped document um, some stuff about the blockade since. Yeah, so you did, in fact, uh, write a book um, about ADEX and the blockade of it called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. To start off with, though, can you tell us what was ADEX? Yeah, so ADEX was um, the Australian International Defence Exhibition, and this was, I guess, an arms fair that was uh, being run in the late 80s and early 90s. It was uh, a two-year, uh, every, happened every two years, and essentially it was brought together. Uh, basically a whole bunch of weapons manufacturers and um, other people involved in selling weapons and brought them together in the nation's capital out at uh, what was known as the National Exhibition Centre back then, uh, which was a big sort of conference centre. And, yeah, basically hundreds of different companies would gather and it was sort of their their big um, powwow and... People would come from all over the world to check out the weapons they had for sale. And I guess it was held 
in the context of there was a push at the time from the ALP, then ALP government, federal government, to they were kind of hoping that arms manufacturing would basically expand in Australia and become a bigger industry within Australia. So this particular kind of arms selling conference was kind of tied in with that. Now, the Australian arms industry didn't really grow in the way they expected, and a lot of that was down to international factors, basically, with um, the end of the Soviet Union. Um, there was, uh, for a period, a whole lot of... Um, disarmament happening in the former Soviet Union and so the I guess the world market for weapons was kind of flooded with all these former Soviet weapons and so that made it very hard for the Australian um, companies to get in as well as sort of there's a bunch of other factor, uh, factors to do with the manufacturing industry at the time but certainly there was this push from the government to expand things. Now, there was also a very strong resistance from Australian people to the Australian arms industry expanding, and the blockade of ADEX was a good example. And so your book is mostly about this mass uh, blockade of this arms expo. Yeah, so in... um in 89, there was a, a smaller protest outside of ADEX, um, but really that the organisers, sort of their intention, uh, as sort of described in the book, and um, was that they would sort of, they wanted to kind of, they, they knew they didn't have enough time to kind of shut ADEX 89 down, but they figured by having a protest it would kind of put the event on the map, I guess, <laughs> for the sort of Australian activist community. And then between 89 and 91, uh, the people who organised the blockade um, travelled all over Australia, um, sort of trying to bring together this big network. And there was a bunch of other groups, uh, peace groups and so forth, also doing the same thing. So... That was quite effective in terms of mobilising um, people across a broad spectrum, sort of from Catholic justice activists and the Catholic Church um, through to the kind of far left um, and uh, all sorts of people in between. Mm. And the uh, organisers, so they sort of organised this blockade, um, but... Uh, I suppose one of there were a couple of factors other than you know the fact that they kind of reached out to such a big network and and kind of in a way hyped ADEX 91 as you know the place to be that you know we were really going to get these arms dealers. Uh, I think there was a few factors that helped them mobilise such a big group. Um, you basically had the first Gulf War happen between. Uh, the two arms conferences and, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of people protesting against the Gulf War and that kind of put the issue of Australian militarism and um, the arms industry into people's minds. And also the first Gulf War was a big shift because Australia hadn't been involved in a conflict like that really since Vietnam. At the same time, um, forest blockades were happening in a big way, um, particularly Northeast Forest Alliance. So, um, 
And some of those, like Chalundai, have been quite successful. So there was sort of a, a group of people around the kind of forest scene. And I guess ADEX, the conference was sort of turned into a kind of a unifying symbol of kind of waste and greed and cruelty. And, and the blockade was very much pushed in that way. So it was sort of, you know, whatever issue you're into, it ties into militarism and war and nationalism and arms dealing in some way. You know, if you want to protect the environment, that ties in. If you're concerned about um, women's rights globally, that ties in. So all these different issues could be, could be tied. And, you know, here's this target... All these um, hundreds, if not thousands, of um, you know arms dealers and and military officers and all the world's worst governments and all the rest of it. They're all going to have representatives at this place. So you know it really made it a, a kind of focal point for for people's um, protest activity. So, uh, fifteen years after the. 8X conference, you uh, wrote a book about it, obviously thinking that this history was important. Um, why was that? What's important about this history that should be remembered? Well, yeah, quite a few things. I mean, essentially, this was the 8X protest was successful in many ways, and therefore I thought it was worth looking uh, back at what made it successful. Uh, at the time that I put the book together, it's basically an oral history, so it's a whole lot of different people's um, voices, and I tried to make it as sort of varied and representative of the different groups who were involved in the protest as possible. Uh, around that time, there was going to be the first kind of open arms fair basically since ADEX happening in South Australia so it just seemed like a good time to kind of revisit the protest uh, I guess on a personal level because I'd taken part in the ADEX blockade it was also um, you know I, I was sort of interested in working through some of the things that I'd experienced there and so forth so I mean in terms of being successful the what happened was the um, the conference was meant to run, I guess, over four or five days. But the, and I, I guess, the in terms of kind of counter protest strategies, basically the police and the organisers of ADEX uh, didn't expect people to turn up before the thing started, and people got there. Um, quite a bit before it started and started um, blockading days basically before the conference was, was meant to begin and which meant that all the entry points um, to the exhibition centre were shut down uh, and that meant that basically the people running the conference couldn't get their couldn't get their you know pictures and tanks and whatever in, into the site um, so the, the whole Space was sort of shut down. Eventually there was, well, we don't really know exactly how many people were there because people came for sort of varying amounts of time, but at least I would say a 1,000, upwards of a 1,000 people blockading. The exhibitors couldn't get their stuff in. Um, in the end, they brought in a whole bunch of police who kind of um, had to cut a hole in the fence to create their own gate. 
and they never got all of the exhibitions in and some of the exhibitors didn't exhibit and some of the people who were coming, the attendees, didn't bother turning up because even though the police kind of were able to get people through the gates eventually, uh, anybody who was attending was still facing like picket lines of people. And so once the, uh, once the exhibition opened, you basically had round-the-clock picketing and that kind of um, took the form of, yeah, basically people lining up, blocking entrance, police often being lined up, things getting very hot and then the police being given the order to basically smash through the picket and then they would smash up the picket uh, and then, you know, the picket would reform and, and all of that would start over again. So, so the event was majorly disrupted. Because of all the coverage, it got, um, you know, it became a major media story all around Australia which sort of informed people that, hey, there's this growing arms industry and... You know, there's these people who quite openly have an event every year where they celebrate what they do. Um, protesters were, uh, you know, generally maligned in the media. There was kind of crazy stories the police put out about, you know, uh, people throwing acid-filled condoms as if you could have acid, like, in a condom and it wouldn't go all over your hands or whatever. But anyway, they ignored that logic. Um, you know, they found a spear gun in someone's car, so suddenly be, that became, you know, oh, the protesters were wheeling spear guns, this sort of thing. Um, but sort of oddly enough, that kind of negative publicity which made, uh, as as um, one of the ADEX organisers called the protest, protesters thugs and terrorists... That kind of backfired because the ACT government had already said that they didn't want... They'd already said before ADEX 91 that they didn't want to have another one of these events. They didn't... You know, they just didn't want to be involved. So after... Because there was so much kind of negative publicity, both about the protesters but about the event, the ADEX people, they tried to rename their conference Oztech. And, uh, yeah, they basically couldn't find anyone who was willing to take the event on because uh, all the other states were, were, you know, like, well, it's going to cost us heaps in policing, um, you know, we're going to get all these violent, crazy people coming here who, who weren't violent or crazy, but, you know, that was the image that was projected. So pretty much ADEX 91 meant that there were no open arms fairs uh, held in Australia Again, for quite some years, and then yeah, we got to uh, 2008, and uh, they were trying it on again. Mm. Which brings us to Land Forces, which is happening in Brisbane. How do you think that history influences how we should respond to this arms fair happening in Brisbane? Yeah, well, I guess the context, you know, is, is different now. 1991, as it was in 2008, when we were uh, when we managed to stop uh, the arms fair in South Australia. I, I think there's some basic sort of lessons come out of it. I think it's definitely worth putting up uh, or, or proposing a blockade. And uh, if that blockade or the threat of a blockade 
basically can make uh, the people putting on the conference or the people who need to provide the policing and security in order to make the conference happen, if it can impress on them that the political and financial and other costs are too great, then you've got a chance of getting a call off. So in 2008, um, you know, they were going to have this... Uh, new open arms fairs. So as I say, you know, there have been meetings of arms dealers and, and manufacturers, but they sort of had to go back into the shadows after 8X91. So they were starting to come out of the shadows in 2008. And, um, yeah, so they were having this conference in South Australia, but um, because a new group, some of whom had been involved in 8X91, uh, plus other people basically pledged to have big blockade. And because it wasn't that long after the G20 protests in Melbourne, which, um, you know, had seen uh, quite a bit of chaos and sort of um, so forth, the um, South Australian government and the police sort of looked at it and they decided, and I don't know that they would have needed this many people, but they decided they would need at least, you know, five or 600 police to make sure this event went ahead. And on the basis of, the basis of that, they decided it was just too expensive. So they turned around and said to um, the um, organisers, you're going to have to come up with the money. And then the organisers were like, well, we can't afford to pay for those kind of policing costs. So in 2008, that's how we managed to stop that arms fair. Um, so I guess there's a lesson there in terms of if a blockade can... Um, you know, there's, there's certain events, I think, where the state or big business will pay whatever it takes to make them go ahead, but then there's other events where they won't. And thus far, the history of arms fairs has been that they haven't been willing to, to kind of spend exorbitant amounts of money. Uh, I guess the other thing is is that, um, you know, by having a protest or a blockade, I mean, it's very important just, just to, you know, as with most protests and blockades, to try and let the world know what's happening and, and that this kind of thing is, is happening and that, um, you know, a substantial number of people see it as unacceptable. And there's a whole lot of other things that, that blockades can, can achieve too. Okay, thanks very much, Ian. And if people do want to read um, your book about ADEX, how can they do so? Yeah, so if they go to commonslibrary.org, which is an activist resource repository, and they just type in ADEX, A-I-D-E-X, or, um, yeah, if they type, type that in, then uh, they'll find the book. There's also a radio documentary and a whole bunch of photos. All right. Thanks very much, Ian. No worries. On the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, we are talking today on the show about uh, trying to stop arms fairs and these places where the weapons industry get together to showcase some of their wares and try to scam money uh, out of the government for them because ultimately that's who buys weapons is the government and it's taxes money that could be paying for all kinds of other services that does go into the pockets of these weapons companies whose business is to work out how to kill people better and that's in a nutshell that's what it's all about here and that's why people are talking about trying to get down to the Brisbane Convention Center at the start of next month 
to try to disrupt land forces. Um, you can find more info. It's that that name, disruptlandforces.org, or on social media to find out how to get involved. And we were hearing Ian McIntyre talk about the ADEX blockade in 1991, incredibly successful um, campaign in Australian history. And it's so easy to forget this, you know, when we're taught history at school or on the TV or whatever, we don't learn the history of how ordinary people got together and managed to stop a weapons conference, um, even though there was so much money behind and government behind these um, weapons expos. But it lingers in our movements, in some of the people who were there, some of whom will be at Disrupt Land Forces, people who are at ADEX, or people like Ian who have put the work in to document some of this history. And it's so valuable to know because it really enables us to believe that change is possible and it gives us an idea of some of the tactics that are useful and a lot of those tactics that um, were used at ADEX are things that people will similarly try to do at the start of October up here. Um, And, yeah, an inspiration for us to keep going to write our own history and not leave it to the supposed important people, but to realize that all of us can be a part of shaping the world that we live in. So I've got another interview here that relates to land forces. I spoke with Elise West. She's from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, which over the years has been quite a significant force in uh, resisting militarism. And Right now, they've got a campaign going against the militarization of our schools, primary schools and secondary schools. And uh, that may seem extreme, but of course, there's always things like um, cadets and uh, little things like that that have been part of, I guess, the subtle indoctrination of um, kids from a young age into the importance of war and, um, and the weapons industry and everything that goes along with it. But what they're specifically talking about is weapons manufacturers uh, trying to get their tentacles into schools to sponsor um, programs and to uh, get kids linking up from a young age with the weapons industry to get them excited about the possibilities of the money they can make and, of course, the cutting-edge technology toys they get to play with, you know. Um, And... It's a drain of talent away from the real problems in our society about how to fix some of the social problems, how to fix climate change, and into um, the war racket. And so let's have a listen to Elise. Hi, my name is Elise West. I'm the Executive Officer of Medical Association for Prevention of War. So before we go any further, Elise, can you give us a bit of a background of who the Medical Association for Prevention of War are and what you do? All right, so uh, MAPW is a national network of health workers from every field. We're the affiliate of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, who were um, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, and we're the founder of ICANN, International Campaign abolish nuclear weapons, um, who is the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Um, Our work is based on the commitment of our members as health professionals to do no harm and to preserve the health and dignity of all people, but also on the recognition that many of the things that affect people's health are outside the biomedical model. 
We focus on peace because it's a fundamental enabler of human health and, and human flourishing. And by preventing war and the normalisation of war, we save lives and prevent illness and disability, displacement and trauma, as well as the terrible effects of war on the environment. Mm, a very um, broad-scale approach to community health, I guess. Correct, yes. It's a really fundamental public health issue that without um, basic human security, we can't address the other things that we find important. Um, you know, housing, education, good jobs, um, you know, accepting societies, uh, a healthy future are all based on, on the need for peace. So one of the recent campaigns that MAPW has run has been about the influence of the weapons industry in schools in Australia. Can you tell us a bit about this? All right, so um, the proliferation of weapons is one of the greatest threats to peace today and the development and trade and use of armaments undermines human security and creates really serious harm. Um, we're also particularly concerned with nuclear weapons. They pose a really grave existential threat. Um, the weapons industry profits from war and insecurity and it's very strongly associated with corruption and human rights violations. Um, and when we see the weapons industry as just another industry and focus on things like job creation or fancy technology or the value of our exports, we really normalise and sanitise their core business, which is war and harm and insecurity. So our investigation into the influence in schools began in 2019 with research conducted by Lisa Coulthard. And we found that major weapon companies are seeking to build positive brand recognition amongst Australian students. <clears throat> we focus particularly on primary and secondary students, the kids as young as four and five in schools, um, with the intention of attracting best and brightest young people into a talent pipeline. So starting in primary school, through secondary school, into university and out to careers on the other side. Um, and also with the intention of developing a workforce that's socialised to accept the development and use of war, hardware and software as essential and exciting careers. And of course, by extension, that war is inevitable and weapons are, are good. Um, we also found that weapons companies' STEM programs, so that's science, technology, engineering and maths programs, um, promote and gamify skills that will be relevant to next generation weapons. So things like hypersonics and smart munitions, artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous systems. And these are all weapons that, um, well, the moral and legal implications are, are very profound and are yet to be settled. They're characterised by their potential harm to non-combatants and the distance they create from actual killing and the automation of life and death decisions. Um, we think that this is really important and deserves more attention and more discussion amongst citizens and parents and, and teachers. Um, we think that this is a, a social issue and um, also affects STEM education more generally because shaping the STEM education ecosystem to meet defence skill needs, not other skill needs, is really an explicit goal of the government. And we think this um, starves other industries, say like renewable energy, for example, for really talented, um, committed young people who have been influenced very early on by an industry that we think is very harmful. So can you give us an example of some of these the STEM programs in schools that the weapons industry are involved with? Yeah, so we found about two dozen programs across Australia. We think there are probably many more, um, mostly sponsored by big in industry primes like BAE and Boeing, 
Charlie's Lockheed Martin. Um, they're things like sponsorships, events, competitions, tours of um, industry premises, exhibitions at career fairs, um, things like direct engagement between um, company employees and student teachers where company reps might go into classrooms. Um, there are career pathways, uh, so strong uh, agreements between schools and local weapons companies to provide things like apprenticeships. Um, we found Northrop Grumman, which is the third biggest weapons maker in the world, wanted a trip to the United States for, um, for teachers and, and children. Um, we're also really concerned by programs like First Lego League, which is open to children as young as four years old, and as the name suggests, involves um, using Lego. BAE Systems is one of the sponsors of that, and as you might know, BAE um, is associated with corruption and fraud, is involved with the manufacture of components for nuclear weapons. Um, we think this is a really problematic association. So there's a, a kind of cultural influence here in that from a, a very young age, kids are socialised into thinking about weapons as um, productive and exciting and an industry to be involved in. Is there a, a direct sort of link, I guess, in personnel in like funneling these people into the weapons industry? Yeah, look, so we started looking into that. Um, we started looking at things like um, higher education thesis, for example. So looking at when you have a very strong relationship with a weapons industry, what are the kind of um, higher degree research projects that emerge? Um, but we've yet to really get a, a full picture of the whole um, sort of sphere of influence. There was, a few years ago, a bit of a campaign in Australian universities against the influence of um, weapons manufacturers in universities, particularly Lockheed Martin was one. Do you see links between what you're seeing in schools and that university influence? Absolutely, yes. So we focus on primary and secondary education to sort of demonstrate the, the continuum and that um, the influence of universities is really only part of the picture and we noted it starting so much earlier. So children as young as four and five and six years old, it's a bit akin to junk food marketing for kids. So if you think about junk food sponsorship of, of sport to children when they are still um, forming their ideas and their opinions about the world, um, they receive positive messages and have exciting experiences with a brand um, that hides the kind of unhealthy aspects of, of what it does. And that's very hard to dislodge as children grow up and get older. So can you tell us a bit about MAPW's uh, campaign against this and how you've been trying to counter this influence? We have been engaging with state education unions. Um, we think this is a core issue for educators as well. Um, as well as being uh, not good generally for society, we think it does also undermine some core educational values. Most states have a policy where um, companies involved with gun manufacturer or gun promotion can't have relationships with schools, but we see that um, companies that make big guns, missiles or other weapons can, and we think that's a problem. So we've been engaging directly with education unions and also with education ministers about the problems, um, the gaps in the policy. 
We've also been disrupting other sponsorship arrangements between weapons companies and charities, for example. Um, and we've also recently partnered with education, uh, sorry, Engineers Without Borders, who um, are a great organisation who work directly with engineers. We've developed some Influencer for Peace fellowships where we take um, sort of ambitious and talented young engineers and try to um, provide them with another perspective on um, the influence of the weapons industry over engineering and STEM education. That is a really vital thing, isn't it? In um, I think we've talked about a lot in the past about sort of the average person, you know, the way the army supplies this kind of adventure and purpose in life, but as well that kind of the cutting edge of society, you know, weapons industries sort of portray themselves as the cutting edge of technology and it's very attractive to some of the the most gifted sort of STEM students. But there is that other try to change what does the cutting edge look like, you know, and things like, yeah, ending world hunger or renewable energy and things like that. It, it is important to change that kind of culture, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. And that's where we sort of, we think as an organisation of health and medical workers, we play a role because we, we focus on harm and doing no harm um, and to highlight the fact that the weapons industry is basically, a, it, it's a very harmful industry, um, not just to people, but also to, to the environment. Um, and that talented young people are needed on the cutting edge of less harmful um, industries that can actually solve some of our most pressing uh, collective problems. It's an incredible uh, waste of human potential, really, when you think about it, with so many, in a world with so many issues that need resolving. Yeah, and we'll note that recently um, the Australian government announced its intention to create a space force uh, in recognition of, of space as a contested domain. So, you know, the domains for conflict actually keep getting bigger, you know, not smaller, and that actually creates um, more opportunities for a bigger defence industry that is going to require more people with more skills to fulfil. So we think it's really urgent that we address this issue now. Okay, so um, in a couple of weeks' time in Brisbane, there will be the Land Forces Weapons Expo. Some of the companies that you've mentioned, um, big arms manufacturers, will be there. Do you think it's important to ha- do something to resist things like the Land Forces Weapons Expo? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's really important to be present, to be loud, and to provide another point of view. Um, I did hear one of the exhibitors at <laughs> at the exhibition calling anyone who um, doubted the importance of the weapons industry as an extremist. Um, so I think it's really important to show that people from all walks of life, including health professionals, um, who have a commitment to the health and dignity of all people, also oppose um, the weapons industry from a very fundamental position. Okay, thanks very much, Elise. Thanks, Andy. You are listening to The Paradigm Shift, speaking with Elise West there from Medical Association for the Prevention of War about uh, their campaign to get the arms industry out of our schools. And at the top of the show, if you missed it, uh, I did talk to Ian McIntyre, radical historian, about the blockade of the ADEX Weapons Expo in 1991, which actually stopped not only ADEX from happening, but any 
big public weapons expo from happening in Australia for a couple of decades after that. So it is possible. And the point of all this show, uh, all this talking on the show is not just to learn this stuff. It's because there is a weapons expo coming up in Brisbane at the start of next month and Disrupt Land Forces, the campaign to try to stop it, is running a full week of programs to get to know each other, plan out some strategy and then to get down there and try to make sure that the arms industry can never get together in the middle of Brisbane again to uh, sell their, their products of death and destruction. There's lots of reasons to try to resist the war machine. Um, it's environmentally, it's immensely destructive, as we've said. It's incredibly um, costs a lot of money and very wasteful. Uh, I think culturally, it has very negative effects on this country, where um, our idea of our national identity is limited to, uh, you know, these myths of battle where the only thing it means to be proud of being Australian is that you could go and kill somebody else on a battlefield. Well, number one, that's not very much to be proud of. And number two, everybody does that. (laughs) Every country fights wars. It's no uh, great Australian myth. Um, It's time to start telling other stories about who we are and what we can be. And of course, ultimately, we see when we are fighting in conflicts the way that um, our people who go to war are kind of poisoned by the atmosphere of war and as we've seen in the investigation to war crimes committed by the Australian SAS in Afghanistan, there's an ongoing defamation case against one of our leading SAS soldiers, Ben Robert Smith, about uh, what what he did when he was being put in a position of power in a war zone and it's horrible stuff and it's time to speak honestly about war and what it does and of course with another potential uh, global conflict that could involve Australia against our main trade partner um, it's time to rein in the the craziness of these cowboys leading us to another war that's all we have time from the paradigm shift this week I'll be back next week and hopefully I'll see you at disrupt land forces in a month's time